Imagine you're on a shift. You walk out of the room of your third atypical chest pain for the night. You're counting down the hours. No, you're counting down the minutes until the end of your shift. You're done, but then you realize you're not done because careening down the hallway is one of your favorite nurses. She immediately lets you know that a preschool-aged child was just dropped off in the room. The child is there with the parents brought in emergently from the babysitter's house. They swear she was normal when they dropped her off at the babysitter's house, but now she's really sleepy. They're having a hard time waking her up. You walk into the room, and you see a child that's kind of draped over her mom's arms. She's not really responding. She's sleeping. It's almost like she's snoring. She's taking fast, shallow breaths, but you notice that she's got good color. You check. She's got good pulses, brisk cap refill. You listen. Her lungs are clear, but immediately you get it. This child is sick. While you're examining her, her eyes open, but then they kind of roll around as she pushes you away. And then she just falls back asleep. The nurse puts her on the monitor and you see normal vital signs except for tachycardia. Wait, is that your heart rate? No, no, it's definitely her heart rate. Man, she is sleepy, except for when she's screaming her stinking head off. Her pupils are large, there's no signs of trauma, but man, she is so sleepy. How is it possible to be so sleepy and so fussy at the same time? On top of all of this, the nurse beside you has already called for the RT, is calling for more nurses, and asking if you should move to the resuscitation bay to intubate. Running through your mind are a million things. Is this trauma? Is it ingestion? Infection? Electrolyte abnormality? This case happened in one of our community emergency departments, and the ED provider was worried about all of the above. They obtained a chest X-ray, a head CT, tons of labs, and they intubated for transfer. Everything, including the toxicology workup, was negative. As in many hospitals, they couldn't test for marijuana on the point-of-care urine drug screen, but they figured something had probably been ingested. They transferred to us where Dr. Dan Colby was the on-call toxicologist. Here he describes how the child looked when he saw him upon transfer. So now it had been several hours later, and, and now the child was not on any heavy sedation, was relatively calm, still had mildly abnormal pupil exam, um, was still a little bit tachycardic, but was not as severe as the child had been when they presented, um, seemed to be breathing well on the ventilator. So as if very similar to someone who's now metabolizing in ingestion, which is very typical with toxicologic patients that they're acutely ill and now maybe by the time I'm consulted for a transfer. Now maybe they're better, hopefully, um, and that, so that fit. And then again, I don't have a lot of tools to to do better laboratory evaluation, specifically for marijuana products. A lot of the tests I can do are sendouts, um, but we really uh, worked hard to get the whole social picture with the family. And we realized that maybe someone else had an exposure in the home, and they did reveal to us with some careful questioning. We built some trust with them um, that they do have edible marijuana products in the home, and we realized that. Um, they were missing one, and what they were missing was a product that looks just like a Reese's peanut butter cup package with two peanut butter cups and an orange package, and that's what the child had likely got it into in hindsight now. This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside. With your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magani. Episode 1, Pot Tarts. 
Welcome to the inaugural episode of E-Impulse. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. So today we're going to start off talking about a very timely and relevant topic, particularly if you live in California. Which we do, Sarah, but you could live in any of the other states in the United States or the District of Columbia that legalized pot and have put it into the hands of our families. Today we're going to talk about the legalization of marijuana and its implications for our children. Yeah, and to be clear, we're talking about the legalization for recreational use. So it has been legal for medicinal use in certain areas, um, but this is a big change. The sale of, of marijuana for recreational use is legal as well in California now. Yeah, as of January 1, we can find it in our stores here in California. THC is becoming increasingly accepted, and people think that it's safe and might not treat it like other potentially dangerous medications. But marijuana is so much stronger than it used to be, and it's being marketed like candy, which can be really confusing to kids. Yeah, I can see that being extremely confusing to my kids who can't read yet, but they can sure recognize major candy brands like Pop-Tarts for sure. While they can't read, they are able to listen. They are watching the news while I'm watching the news. And I felt like there's been this huge cultural acceptance, even a shift in the last year or so that has made marijuana more acceptable. I was watching the CNN New Year's broadcast with my son. And one of the broadcasters was actually posted in Colorado at a puff, pass and paint party. And it was all about the legalization of marijuana in Colorado. I see it on TV, and as I've been listening to the 2017 top songs on iTunes, I think I'm at like four or five songs so far that have integrated marijuana into the song itself. And I think about the generation that's really impressionable right now, and that's the teenagers, kind of young adult group, who are going to be parents themselves within the next decade or so. So I think it's super important that we teach these parents how to be responsible with their marijuana so that their kids aren't getting in trouble. So to discuss that more today, you've already heard from Dan Colby, who's a medical toxicologist and assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. We'll hear some more from him at the end of the podcast. Now we're really excited to welcome John Richards and Amy Mullen. John is a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and the chair of quality management for SAEM. And Amy is an associate professor of emergency medicine here at UC Davis. She's also the director of behavioral health and the president of California ASAP. John and Amy, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. John, tell us about your review. Well, the title is a, a systematic review of unintentional cannabis ingestion in children. And uh, I have to thank Amy for uh, the, the genesis of the idea originally came from her because we were uh, experiencing an increased in number of uh, patients with cannabis toxicity who were adults. And she had mentioned that cannabis products that were marketed for adults were also being produced in candy form and also cookie and brownie form as well, which are very appealing to children. So she said, we should do a review of the papers that are out there looking at this. And the only way to really do this in an evidence-based way is a, a systematic review. So we did a huge literature search and basically looked at every single case, case series, and any kind of study that was done on the subject. And what we found is we had a total of about 44 cases, over 3,500 kids uh, under the age of 12 who had unintentional cannabis ingestion. And the cannabis was of, you know, not only candy, cookie form, but it could have been in the form of hashish or even a joint laying on the ground. 
kids are very uh, interested in exploring the world by putting things in their mouth, especially at a young age. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. I think my kids have put everything in their mouth. So what were the more common signs and symptoms that you saw? Basically, kids came in very lethargic, not acting themselves. And we listed the most common symptoms that physicians saw. And besides the lethargy, you also had kids that were having difficulty walking. They were very ataxic. Um, They were also uh, hypotonic, you know, very floppy. The pupil exam was also telling in that they had medriasis. Some did have meiosis, though, so it wasn't consistent. And basically, the most concerning symptom was the hypoventilation. A lot of these kids ended up intubated because uh, they weren't ventilating very well. They didn't have good chest rise. They were, you know, not responding. So they ended up in the PICU intubated. One of the things that I thought was really interesting as I was reading through the case reports was the profound coma from some of these kids and the Mm. descriptions of how profoundly comatose, especially the younger age children, were when we were reading through the case reports. Yikes. What kind of interventions did these kids require? What we found was uh, approximately 20 cases were admitted to the PICU, and uh, of these, seven were actually intubated. And quite a few actually underwent some invasive procedures like lumbar puncture, And I know in the absence of suspecting cannabis ingestion, if you have a young child coming in who's lethargic, hypoventilating, the first thing on your mind is maybe uh, head trauma or perhaps meningitis, encephalitis. So it's easy to see how these patients would undergo a lot of different uh, invasive testing. So besides that, they get CAT scans, EEGs, things like that, that they probably didn't need. Yeah. And in pediatrics, less is definitely more, if at all possible. How did these kids get their hands on the marijuana? What type of marijuana did they ingest? I think the most common thing we saw was hashish ingestion. And I think that might just be due to the greater availability of hashish. Hashish is basically a cannabis resin. It's a concentrated cannabis form. It looks like a chocolate bar. So you can kind of see how this could be confused to a young child. Amy, was there anything that jumped out at you as you were reviewing the cases? I think one of the things that we thought were really interesting, especially from this review, is the availability of edible products and how they're appealing to young children. And if you start to look at the edible products that are out there, especially from other states, they're really marketed towards children. Brownies, cookies, gummy bears. We even found some pop tarts that were labeled pot tarts really confusing, especially if you were a young child um, and they're marketed to look exactly like the candy product. So I do expect that we're going to see more and more of this, especially now that marijuana is legal for recreational use in the state of California. I think it's going to be important for parents to think about this in terms of education and storage and keeping these products away from young children. But also as physicians, maybe this is something we need to start talking to parents about in terms of accident injury prevention and how we store products like marijuana and how they're marketed. Sure. And we screen our patients all the time in the ER asking them about drug use, alcohol use, and we get a lot of responses, oh, I just use marijuana or things like that. And that would be a perfect opening to sort of talk about safety in the home and how to keep your your child safe. Amy, when you find a patient that's using marijuana, do you have that conversation with them and how do you do it? I think I need to start talking to patients more about this, but to talk about where you're storing your edible products and to label them appropriately. I think it's important just so that 
parents know, hey, there are some negative consequences to young children, um, especially if they're mistaken for normal food candy products. So they need to know that this can be a problem, one, that it's dangerous, and they need to be stored out of reach and ideally in child protective lockbox containers. Yeah, that's a really good idea. What did you guys think was the most important takeaway point from this review? I think one, the safety issue and how we store, label, and market edible marijuana products. But two, I think as providers, we need to know that this is a possibility and we need to open this onto our differential of a child who's acting abnormally, who's potentially obtunded and comatose, so that we could make the diagnosis, one, for research purposes, but two, to potentially avoid a lot of these invasive procedures EEGs, LPs, intubation, that we can start to think about this and maybe make the diagnosis earlier. Yeah, so maybe it's also a matter of clinical suspicion that, you know, if we're not thinking about this, we're not testing for it. Did any of these papers look at the implications of ingestion from a child protective services standpoint? All the papers that mentioned it stated that that trigger was not pulled. So in other words, the parents were not you know, had, did not have the children taken away from them or, or did not get into legal trouble. And this was in, in states and countries uh, in which uh, cannabis was not legal for recreational use. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. John, Amy, is there anything else you think we should know? We do know from the first state that legalized recreational marijuana, Colorado, the prevalence increases as legalization occurs. Dr. Sam Wang published quite a few studies uh, with his experience there in kids And so it's going to happen, and we just have to be prepared for it. Yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, I think, unfortunately. Thanks so much for being with us today. Really important work you guys are doing. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Dan, just like that community emergency medicine provider, I can really get my heart rate going with a good altered mental status kid. There's just such a broad differential, and I know that marijuana is on my differential, and I'm ready now to see more of it. But what in the history will help me know that this is marijuana? Yeah, it's it's a great question because it's tough. I don't think any of us are trained uh, really well exactly how to figure it out because they don't fit perfect boxes. Um, Something that is really helpful is the timeline. A child that was well and becomes rapidly, quickly, acutely altered that can be helpful, but even then that can happen with all those other pathologies as well. And I, I'm kind of concerned that we're going to see more of these exposures with Prop 64. Uh, we know from the review in the Colorado data that their numbers went up big and we have a much bigger population and I think we're going to see more of it. So it's definitely a big challenge. Identifying it is great if you can identify this as a marijuana product intoxication exposure um, because then maybe a child avoids intubation, avoids an MRI, avoids a lumbar puncture, which again, all those things are not benign interventions. Even though we don't think children will be will be dying from marijuana, all those things are are, are not benign. They have they have uh, some downside to them. Oh yeah, they are. What are some things that we can look for on the physical exam that would let us know this is marijuana ingestion? These patients can run the gamut a little bit, so they often are sedated. Um, but they might be agitated. Again, it depends on the dose and the strain. Pupils might be dilated somewhat, but they, they can be small as well. Uh, sluggish is often what we see in general. They might be diaphoretic. Oftentimes, they're not. Oftentimes, if they are awake, they might seem a little bit agitated or uncomfortable. 
it's just a challenging exam again because you're going to have variability. It's not a pure as a, of a product. And we always talk about the dose makes the poison. Do you find that families spontaneously disclose that their child ate the cannabis-infused candy that they left out, like a pot tart? Or how do you get them to actually share what's in the house and what the child may have eaten? Yeah, so it's it's tough. You have to uh, build a rapport. It's it's legal in California now, but even then, people don't want to readily give up that information based on years of kind of hiding it. Um, so reassure them that we're not the police, that we're not going to arrest them, that that we just are concerned about their child or their family member. Um, and we'll start off with questions like, you know, basic questions about medications in the home. And then people say, we don't have any. I say, what about, you know, Tylenol, ibuprofen? They're like, oh, we do have those. And so I, I have them maybe realize that maybe they do have more in their home than they realize. Um, and oftentimes they say, oh, we don't have any marijuana in the home, but maybe um, their nephew does that lives with them, or maybe their brother that lives with them. So, so it just asks those questions slowly and systematically, um, not in an accusatory way, obviously, just just try and build trust with them as, as they reveal a little bit more. Um, in this situation, actually, very quickly, we were able to make that connection about the marijuana in the home, the edible product that maybe the outside hospital wasn't able to because they had thought about it more or we asked the right question. Is there anything with the labs that's helpful for us? Is there a blood test we can send? Is a Utox helpful? Right. That's a great question as well. So a lot of um, hospitals have THC on their standard urine drug screen, and that can be helpful. At the same time, one of the reasons we don't have it at UC Davis Health, one of the reasons that community hospital didn't have it, is it has a good number of false positives. Specifically, the urine drug screen has false positives for NSAIDs, ibuprofen, naproxen. Um, so a lot of patients will be falsely positive. Um, so it can be falsely reassuring. Um, in California, our marijuana rates, use rates were already so high in patients, usually adults in general, um, that you would just have a lot of patients with a positive THC um, on the urine drug screen. So what do you do with that? That's not very helpful. So we eliminated it. I try and teach my residents that you shouldn't rely on the urine drug screen. You should treat the patient. So it's a challenge to say, is, could this be methamphetamine? Could this be sepsis? Could this be an intracranial hemorrhage? And trying to base this all on the Utox is not really the best way to practice, I think. One other thing I do want to mention is due to multiple requests, we've talked to our toxicology lab, and we're going to be bringing back a urine drug screen, a separate order for THC that we can order individually, uh, specifically because of the pediatric patients. I don't expect us to be using them much in adults, but if you have a acutely altered child and their exam is not is not fitting any specific toxidrome and there's concern for sepsis or an intracranial process, I think having a positive THC can be of some use. It might steer you away from those other tests like a lumbar puncture or MRI that, or a CAT scan that we talked about. Sure. Are you seeing an increase in marijuana ingestion at the poison center? We have. We don't have any data yet because we're still collecting it. We're making a point to collect data from the poison center prospectively in terms of calls and exposures. Um, but I can tell you just from my personal experience, we're getting more calls and we're seeing more transfers to our pediatric ICU, uh, specifically because in the medical cannabis world, people were producing a lot more of the edible products. And now with recreational legalization, exactly as you said before, more marijuana products casually in the home. And they don't get treated like other medications. They get left out on a table. I think a lot of people think that marijuana is super safe. You know, it's not that big a deal. It's the same as smoking a cigarette or it's the same as having a drink of alcohol. But I think we're thinking back to like the weed of the 60s. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about like what, what is different about marijuana now? Why are we seeing more concerning cases or more pathology? Even though it's legal now in California, right, Prop 64, we don't have the same evidence or data we would have with other medications 
uh, because it's been illegal, it's been Schedule 1 for so long. Federally, I guess it is still Schedule 1. But we don't have the same data, but we do know that marijuana back in the 60s was maybe 6 7% THC. Marijuana now is closer to 12 13 14 15%. So it's much more potent. And then we also have the fact that people are making things like hash oil, their earwax, other terms for this, where they're, they're taking a gas and concentrating marijuana products into some sort of crystal or, or sticky liquid that might be a lot closer to 80, 85, 90% THC. So these products are far more potent in the same way people who tried marijuana in college know you don't need a box of marijuana cookies. Imagine a single cookie for a two-year-old. That's what it's like. It's like they ate a whole box of it. So while, again, it shouldn't be deadly, the dose makes the poison. Yeah, that is a huge difference. When you identify a child who's ingested marijuana, do you call your social worker or do you call CPS? What do you do next? Yeah, so we have a policy for all inadvertent exposures in our emergency department in, in, for pediatrics to consult so- social work. It's important. We think we probably call our social work team probably more than they need to be called, and we'd rather call them uh, and be extra careful. It is a little bit more confusing now that it's legal in California. Do you make a CPS report? Um, And that's still a little bit to be determined, very subjective. The physician and social work connect, and after both interviewing the patient and the the family, and try and make a decision, was this single-time carelessness, which is understandable, the legal now in California, um, or is this a situation where uh, this is going to happen again? Is there a situation where this is neglect? What exactly happened? Um, but it's it's a challenge. It really is. Is there anything else you think we should know about cannabis ingestion in children? Yeah, I think uh, we just got to see where this goes. And, and at a minimum, I'm happy that California waited until we could learn some of the lessons from Colorado, and hopefully we can make things safer. There is a bill that's in process through the California state legislature right now in terms of not necessarily banning, but limiting edibles and candy lookalikes. So we'll see where that proceeds. Dan, thanks again for being here today. Pulse check. So that's our pulse check. Listen up for those, because that's going to be an indication that we've got something important to tell you. To briefly summarize what we've talked about today, marijuana is becoming increasingly accepted. It's legal in a lot of places, and people think it's really safe. They're not treating it as the dangerous drug that it is. It's stronger than it was before. It's being marketed like candy, and this is super confusing to kids. Yes, Erin, we know from Colorado data When it is legalized, there's an actual increase in pediatric ingestion as well. So if you have a child who comes in with altered mental status, lethargic, abnormal gait, think about ingestion and consider asking more questions of the family and choosing interventions carefully. We need to encourage our patients, especially those parents we meet in the adult ED who are using marijuana, to treat it like any other dangerous medicine. Keep it locked away from your kids. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine, who really makes this podcast possible. And a huge thank you to Orlando Magana and OM Audio Productions for producing and advising this podcast. Many of the speakers you'll hear on this podcast will actually be at the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Tahoe. I know I'll be there. I will definitely be there. (laughs) There will be a hands-on difficult airway and ultrasound clinic. And we're going to discuss toxicology, taking care of sick kids, and more in between ski runs down the mountain at Lake Tahoe, February 26th to March 2. 
There's more information in the show notes and at ucdavisem.com. So please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EMPulse Podcast. And join us again next month on EMPulse. See ya. See ya.